From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The countdown is on for the world to begin a new chapter, a new decade in 2020. Before that page turns, we're going to throw back today, looking at some benchmark changes over the past decade, beginning in Georgia. In Georgia, an Air National Guard C-130 cargo plane exploded in flames on a busy highway just after takeoff from Savannah. Michael was still a major hurricane when it crossed the border into southwestern Georgia last night. It is the most powerful storm ever recorded in that part of the state. Police have arrested three people in connection to a fire that led to parts of the Interstate 85 to collapse. Immigration and Customs Enforcement have arrested Grammy-nominated rapper 21 Savage in Atlanta. One Georgia town a lot of you may not even have heard of is so eager to land Amazon's next HQ that it has offered to create a new city called, wait for it, Amazon. Those are just a couple of the highlights to get us started. As you tune in, send us the biggest moments or events or other shifts you've seen in Georgia or the world at large over the past decade. You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're kicking off the conversation with two journalists who have kept a close eye on the state over the past 10 years. Nicole Smith is features editor of the at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thomas Wheatley is articles editor at Atlanta Magazine. Hello to both of you. Hey, how's it going? Hello, hello. Well, we've got 10 years and, what, 20 minutes to get through it, so let's go. It's easy. <laughs> Simple. Well, let's look at this. I mean, think about 10 years ago. The economy was still sputtering from the recession, the Great Recession. Now, you both submitted lists of big changes, and one of those, the explosion of the now $9.5 billion Georgia film industry, a biggie. Tax credits passed back in 2008. But what has that incentive meant for Georgia in the decade since? Who wants to start? I can start with that. I Honestly, I didn't see Georgia being in that position. And we've had basically these tax incentives that have put Georgia on the map. It's the new Hollywood. It's not just the Hollywood of the South. And if you think about it, there were 25 um, active TV productions in 2011. Now we're talking about 120 active TV productions by September 2019 of this year. And that's just TV productions. We're not talking about um, major films and major production houses. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We've got Tyler Perry Studios, we've got Pinewood, and we've got major things like Marvel films. Black Panther, one mm-hmm. of the biggest films that it has been in recent history. We're talking about most of that filmed right here in Atlanta. So I think that just really speaks to what Atlanta and what Georgia has become to the film industry and just leaving a bigger narrative on the arts. And it's really crazy because it has... It, 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 we have a dedicated workforce now, and I, I, I was uh, I was telling a producer uh, a few days ago, I I was a child actor here in Georgia. Our and, intelligence sources did reveal that <laughs> to us. Your sources are excellent, and um, and I remembered when I was going to shoots and everything. There was I would see the same camera guy, the same grip, the same lighting guy, and it was if if you were one of those. One of those people, you had a great job because you were on pretty much every production. Mm -hmm. And now it's, you know, you talk to some people in the industry and they can kind of take their pick on on some jobs about, you know, am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? People are moving into neighborhoods. It's changing the face of Atlanta. Well, it used to be said that Georgia was like a Chinese factory, that the ideas and deals were made in L.A., but the work was done here. Is Mm -hmm. that, has that changed? That's definitely changed. And I I think that, that just shows that talent comes from everywhere. And we can't put people in a box, right? And especially when it comes to the art, everyone has the opportunity to contribute here in Georgia. And I think that these tax film credits have 
shown that. And Georgia basically has gives out the most tax credits of anywhere in the world except for the UK. And it just brings all those different types of ideas and thought processes to this state and talent. And so we're not boxed in anymore. Well, that that has some deep implications here, too. Of course, the film industry workers were caught in the middle of the battle between Georgia lawmakers and productions following the so-called fetal heartbeat law. After Governor Kemp signed the bill, some studios, producers and performers threatened to boycott Georgia. Did those threats move the needle at all in the state? I think they made a message. I'm not sure that Mm -hmm. it's at the end of the day. I believe money talks. Um, very loudly. So I think it it intended to move the needle more than it did. But now that people have the studios are here now that people have houses, it's a little harder to leave. Yeah, it's people have put down roots in 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 a way that's going to it's going to keep them here. And what we need next are just, you know, more shows being written here. Uh, that's the next big thing. Well, Nicole, House Bill 481, that's a topic that you put on your list. This is the so-called fetal heartbeat law. Federal judge temporarily blocked the bill from becoming law next month while it's being argued in court. But what effect did its passage have on the state? Honestly, I think that it's made people more divided, right? And so the dinner conversations around the table have changed. And so you get to find out really what people think and what they feel. And it's just become more of a divisive environment just overall nationally. And I think that that just this that bill and that passage of that bill really just spoke to the larger narrative at hand. Mm -hmm. Georgia landed in the national spotlight regarding that 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 the abortion and voting rights, uh, also voting rights topics, so very divisive topics. Other states have had similar issues. But Thomas, how did Georgia become the battleground state for politics and the culture wars? I really want to say that it it it, it comes from our uh, changing demographics and, and just how the state is evolving. Um, Georgia is uh, it's 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 always been a a state where a lot of people are moving to, especially from New York. If you look at a lot of the stats, a lot of people move here from New York, um, from all over the country, really all over the southeast, and with them comes different politics, right. different viewpoints, and. Um, that, that changes things. There's also generational changes in terms of millennials. Um, there are people who um, used to live in the city, can no longer afford to live here, or maybe wanted a different, you know, different life, so they moved to the suburbs. That changes things. Um, so it's, it's, it's quickly evolving, and it is definitely finally becoming the purple state that people have always said is on its way. It's on its way. I, I definitely think that politics is a reflection of what's already happening, right? So the, the, we're talking about a 22-point swing in six years. Mitt Romney won Cobb County, mm-hmm. hands down, mm-hmm. right? And then we go to Hillary Clinton. The, it, it, it gets much smaller, and she wins. And then we have Stacey Abrams, who wins the county and then barely loses the state in the gubernatorial race. So I think that it politics is almost a reflection of what's already happening. And as you mm-hmm. stated, things are changing. The world is changing. And Cobb County is not the Cobb we used to know. Right. No. So we're on the way to becoming a majority minority state. Mm-hmm. Thomas Wheatley with us, articles editor, Atlanta Magazine. AJC features editor Nicole Smith also with us. We're looking at some of the major changes in Georgia over the past decade. It's not too late for you to join the conversation. We do have a Facebook group, GBB Radios on Second Thought. You can join the conversation. Tell us how the Peach State has changed and how that's affected your life over the past 10 years.
Well, let's get to that, the changing demographics. A lot of questions in, about Georgia turning blue or, or purple. Election 2020, of course, gubernatorial election was a GOP victory, but his Democratic challenger, Stacey Abrams, made history that when the Georgia Democratic Party voted her as in the primary for governor. Here she is celebrating that moment. We are writing the next chapter of Georgia's future where no one is unseen, no one is unheard, and no one is uninspired. So both both of you, she didn't ultimately win, but what did that victory signal for the state? I think, I, it, as, you, as we just talked about, it signifies change. And so Georgia and does not and the rest of the country does not look like it used to do used to look um, over the past year. So people are becoming just more diverse. And that means we have to accept diverse points of view, diverse thoughts. And at the end of the day, people are going to come and move to places where they feel comfortable to be themselves, to be their authentic selves. Georgia is the place for that. What have you seen? Big surprises for you. Well, and it's, I mean, this, this, this sounds kind of tried to say, but it's exciting. I mean, there's conflict here. If you look back over the past decade, some of the, uh, some of the most high-profile pieces of legislation have, uh, and the battles associated with them have taken place in Georgia. I mean, if you look at the immigration battle in the, in the earlier part of the decade, you look at religious liberty, you look at uh, the abortion bill. And yes, these, these battles took place in, in other states, but... Georgia really had a had a, a magnifying you know, glass on it uh, during all these discussions, and I think it really speaks to the fact that we have a growing progressive uh, segment of the population, a um, an established conservative segment of the population, and I don't know if it's um, kind of last gasps of of saying we let's get this in before the next 2020 mm-hmm. census and many many political theorists think so and um or if it's uh if it's just really um kind of a, like a like a breaking point with the state in terms of terms of where we stand politically. Well, let's, let's pick up on that. The changing state, you both put a number of sports-related items on your list of how the state has changed. And one of those speaks to what you talked about, the, the kind of urbanization and moving out to the suburbs. The Braves moved to Cobb County at, new, at the new SunTrust Stadium. They announced a the move in 2013, shocking a lot of fans, played the first game there in 2017. Many did vow to boycott Braves after that. Nicole, what do you make of that move? Has it hurt them? I don't think at all. I think that the first reaction for a lot of people, which is normal, is to resist change. This change has just proven that we can adjust as as Atlantans and as Georgians, and it's been positive from my point of view. I haven't seen any overall negative effect. And, of course, the Falcons moved to Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the building of the stadium in itself, a mm-hmm. huge move in the last 10 years in Atlanta's west side. Now, this was after playing in the now-demolished Georgia Dome since 1992. How has that panned out for both the team and the neighborhood? I like the fact that we can get $2 hot dogs at Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> <laughs> and vegan hot dogs. And they're actually okay. They're actually okay. They're not bad. Um, I, I, I think it's uh, – if, if you judge by their win-loss, maybe not that great. But, I mean, those that, that's a deeper issue. It's turned out – Great for Atlanta United. Well, and of course, that's the brand new movement that hit Atlanta in 2017. Amazing how quickly that's turned things around and paid off in 2018. In front of a record crowd at the end of a record-setting year, Atlanta United in just their second year of existence have won MLS Cup. So what Atlanta United, now a soccer team 
Atlanta has, of course, had soccer teams in the past, but this was the first major league soccer champions. Mm -hmm. What's the significance of this southern capital where good old American sports, you know, football, baseball, reigned supreme embracing soccer? It's it speaks to our diversity as a region. It speaks well, and and it was an it it, it was a uh, an example of excellent timing by Arthur Blank. Mm-hmm. You could not have picked a better time to launch a soccer team here in the heart of the city. Uh, we were we are well out of the recession. People who were younger and grew up playing soccer are now older. They have families. They have disposable income. More importantly. Um, and with the I think with the Braves leaving, there was a little bit of a um, there was a vacuum and Atlanta United filled that with a, just an incredibly exciting sport. It's it, you you can't compare any other sporting event in Metro Atlanta, in Georgia, in the southeast, for in, in my opinion, to an Atlanta United game. Well, Nicole, you chose Prince performing his last concert at Atlanta's Fox Theater as one of your big, big events for the mm. last 10 years. Let's just hear a quick clip from that show. So he died April 21st, 2016. That concert was recorded just a week earlier on April 14th. What do you remember about Prince's final performance? Uh, Well, I wasn't actually at the performance, but I will say that I will never forget that whole week because I remember getting an email sent from a reporter in the newsroom and it was talking about how Prince was going to cancel some concerts. And I was shocked. And so basically I deployed my music reporter to see if something bigger was at hand. I never figured it would be as big as it turned out to be. And we lost Prince at just 57 years old um, back back in 2016. And at the end of the day, I think that I needed to realize what a big loss that we had because I just went to this news mode of covering everything, what people thought. But there was just such an outpouring of everyone um, in the newsroom. It was a big deal. Nicole Smith, features editor for the AJC. Thomas Wheatley, articles editor, Atlanta Magazine. Stay with us. We're going to wrap up a little more of the decade in Georgia. Back with On Second Thought from GPBM, Virginia Prescott. Back in 2010, it was reported that rapper T.I. Talked, su- talked a suicidal man from jumping off a building in Atlanta. In 2014, a bank mistakenly deposited $31,000 into the wrong account, that of a teenager who had the same name as the depositor. In Hull, Georgia, in 2015, a man in Lee County shot an armadillo and the bullet ricocheted and hit his mother-in-law. These are just some of the surprising and strange headlines to come out of Georgia in the last 10 years. There are plenty more where that comes from. But today we're trying to figure out how has our state changed over this time? We're talking about that with our guest, Nicole Smith, features editor for the AJC and Thomas Wheatley, articles editor for Atlanta Magazine. Well, we wanted we mentioned Prince and other honorable mentions of those that have passed. Greg Allman, Jesse Norman, Whitney Houston, Governor Zell Miller. Jordan Davis, Lucy McBath's son, which was, had some political consequences. Atlanta Count, City Councilman Ivor Young, Beverly Guitar Watkins, Chris McDaddy, Kelly from Criss Cross, if you remember that, and Whitney Houston's daughter, Bobby Christina Brown. Those who passed in Georgia in the last decade. Any big thoughts or any wraparound thoughts on those losses? Uh, Zell, Zell Miller, you know his his lasting legacy was the Hope Scholarship. I was I was a uh, you know I, I was fortunate to get the Hope Scholarship and and go to go to college without student debt. Um, that 
I think in a, changed uh, greatly changed Atlanta in in terms of people now had a really big incentive to stay here um, and not go to other schools for uh, for for higher education. It and it changed the University of Georgia into a very competitive school to get into. Interesting. And Georgia I, Tech. I just read that uh, Georgia, uh, unlike the rest of the nation, student enrollment is going way up, and in other states across the nation, it is going down. So there's a lot to be said there. Another big one here impacts our image, certainly in the world, corruption. And one of the most prominent stories about corruption the last decade was under Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed's administration. This is a federal investigation going on of City Hall. How has that impacted Georgians, Thomas? Well, it's it it is um, you've heard for decades uh, about Atlanta City Hall and and you know people can just kind of um, observing and there wasn't anything to back it up. Then this investigation comes along and it has dragged and dragged and dragged and dragged. And uh, U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack has said that he would like to wrap it up um, before uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms' first term. Um, that's still got a little, you know, little while to go, and uh, I think that it is a good thing. I mean, it's it, it it's painful for the city to go through, but in the end, it's going to help the city's image, and it's also going to help uh, people feel more comfortable about doing business with the city. Yeah, um, and that's a good thing. Well, we do have to talk about 2014 Snowmageddon and the mm. panicked response that prompted an SNL skit with Seth Meyers. So, Buford, tell us about the storm. Oh, Sethery. <laughs> it was horrible. You couldn't imagine such a storm. Lord, I will never forget when I saw those first flakes of devil's dandruff. I'm sorry, devil's dandruff, you mean snow? I do, Sethery. Connecticut confetti. New England clam powder. <laughs> <laughs> Prompted quite a response from a lot of oh, Georgians, but pretty hilarious to listen to. That in the I-85 bridge fire in 2017 brought into perspective Atlanta's struggling transportation infrastructure. How has that changed the discourse or has it in Georgia's capital? Any thoughts on that? First of all, it's interesting because a friend called me at one point when we had the bridge fire and subsequently the collapse, and she said that it spoke to a larger narrative of the crumbling infrastructure across the U.S., and mm -hmm. I said, I'm not sure that I necessarily believe that just because a fire, you have a fire under a bridge, the bridge is, is not um, immune for not falling when there's something that large happening. So I don't know that it spoke to this larger narrative that people thought. And then also, it just I think it just... For me personally, when I passed by, when they were doing their construction and reconstruction of the bridge, it felt bigger than life. I, I felt small next to it, um, even not even having been next to the fire, but just the construction itself. So I realized how just our infrastructure just at this point is is massive. And I think probably we should give a little bit more credit than we do um, in Georgia. But I don't think it speaks to crumbling infrastructure. I think it spoke to something very freaky and weird. To, uh, Snowmageddon and the bridge collapse to me um, spoke to the fact that we are a hopelessly auto-oriented, auto-addicted region mm -hmm. um, because you saw how MARTA use went up um, after after the bridge collapse. Snowmageddon, you saw people sleeping in their cars. MARTA kept operating, um, but MARTA doesn't go everywhere People people need it to go, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Right, um, and it's just a reminder that if we are going to continue to grow as a region, 
I do think we we have to change because at some point I think you're going to peak out. <laughs> you know, if if it's if that's the only way that you can get around the metro region. You bring up a good point about MARTA because I remember we had to create so many stories that got a lot of traffic on how to use MARTA. People didn't know how to use MARTA, yeah. and that is really an inner city thing. It's not a thing <laughs> past certain boundaries in the city of Atlanta. So I think you're absolutely right on that. People had to learn, and then I don't. I don't. I think we unlearned it by now. Yeah, the ridership dropped once once it reopened, and it's great. I mean, like you can't have bridges collapsing in a, in a, in a, in a, a major, major right. in a major metropolitan area, but you also need to be able to move people and products and goods and continue doing business if something like that happens. Transit is a great way to do it. Yet the Gwinnett Martyr referendum failed again. Yep. Right. So this is this is significant that the growth out to the suburbs, a more diversified suburb, but yet still not the political power or will. I, I'm not sure which in order to sway that. So. All right. Um, so we're seeing a lot of, you know, old Atlanta versus new Atlanta, old Georgia versus, you know, there's a the traffic is much worse here. It used to be much more affordable. This is something that we're hearing in Athens and Macon and Columbus and overall urban and rural divide quickly before we wrap. How has that changed in Georgia? It's gotten expensive here. Yeah. At the end of the day. And I think, yes, a lot of people come to Atlanta because we have these new industries that have blossomed. So I think there's some of that as well. I mean, demand rules. And so Atlanta and subsequently the housing and the rent has just skyrocketed over time. And I'm wondering where that ceiling is at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's gotten a lot more expensive in the city and it's gotten a lot more affordable in rural areas, sadly, um, because the people are just moving to cities. It's a, it's a national phenomenon. And uh, I think it's probably one of the most pressing issues for uh, our major urban areas in in Atlanta. I oh. mean, in Georgia, excuse me. Let's hold on for just a minute. Nicole Smith, the features editor for the AJC, Thomas Wheatley, articles editor for Atlanta Magazine. Stay with us. And as we look back on the decade, we asked Georgians about the changes that they've seen since 2010 in their cities, their lives, themselves. And on Second Thought, intern Jessica Lowell hit the streets of Atlanta to find out what people had to say. Hi, my name is Tammy. The biggest change I've seen in the last decade is more people walking around, um, enjoying the outside. My name is Lauren. The biggest change I've seen in, in the, the past decade is certainly the, the repositioning, the re-influx of people in downtown. My name is Ben Kelly. Biggest change I've seen in the past decade. I'm a big fan of music, so probably I would have to say the the way the music has changed is pretty big. Hi, my name's Amber. I would say, in a way, the connectedness of individuals, but also in that uh, regard, the disconnect. Social media brings people together, but we're also behind a screen. My name's Brittany. The biggest change is definitely how people think in the last decade. Um, people's mindset has become so sensitive, a little overly sensitive, so it's a big change. My name is Bargov. I guess the way people are thinking has changed, but I feel like people have become a lot more compassionate. Like, I think I've seen that people are starting to care a lot more about the plight of other people. I've had the same barber my entire life, and she tells me that like my hair has kind of changed, like the structure. I don't know. So I guess physically I've changed a little bit. Probably 
that I'm not getting any younger. I kind of caught on to that. The biggest change I've seen in myself, besides age, um, maybe being more patient, more open to change. Being more sure of who I am as a person. I've learned to go with the flow. Life goes on. Life goes on. Life Goes On. And you heard the song It's Real by Real Estate. And that montage by, put together, by the way, by our intern, Jessica Lowell, whose time with us, like the decade, is coming to a close. She's preparing to go to another internship in Salt Lake City. So thanks to her for wrapping up the 2010s with us. We just spent some time looking at changes in Georgia since 2010. Now we're looking at the national and international trends that gripped the country and the culture over the last 10 years. We've added a couple new guests clued into those shifts and what they mean or what they say really about the world that we live in. Michael B. Jordan is an Atlanta-based writer and man about town with us. Hello, Michael. Hello, hello. <laughs> and we have Joyce Lynn Wilson, assistant professor of hip-hop studies and digital media at Georgia Tech. Hello there. Hello. Welcome back. Thank and you. Charles Isbell is back with us. He's dean of the College of Computing at Georgia Tech. Hello. Hello. Nice to have you all here. All right, so we have now half an hour to get together all 10 years, so we're going <laughs> to roll into that. We really can't talk about the past decade without rising the rise of social media, which is where we're going to start. Boom and bust cycles of Facebook, certainly in this decade, an IPO in 2012, initially met with excitement, then disappointment, and then the company's role in national elections remains an open question. So let's look at how our relationship with, just say, Facebook, for starters, has changed over the last 10 years. Charles, have you got thoughts on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I think, <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> I, I think the story, of, uh, the story of the decade really has been uh, social media. It's been all the data that's out there in the world that's been taken from us and it's taken about us and that we are willingly given up. Facebook is in some ways the example of that, uh, but you could go from Facebook to any number of other companies, Apple, Google, everyone else out in the world, and they're all doing the same thing. But I think the, the big deal there um, is as they affect our elections, they affect the way that we talk, they affect our, our sense of well-being. Uh, that we have done all of this willingly into ourselves. It's not as if we were tricked into it. It's something that we decided we wanted to do, and that we were perfectly happy with sharing our data and ourselves in this way. Well, we want to show ourselves this was the decade of the selfie, after all, where we put ourselves out there, and the rise of the Instagram and other social media influencers, people who were becoming celebrities, changing minds, or, or gathering followings. What has that meant for the way that we deal with each other? Michael, you're nodding, so I'm going to just hand this to you. Um, it, it changes the way we deal in, with each other, I think, because uh, you don't want to deal with people as much when you see their personas on social media. One of the things I think was really interesting about it, especially with the influencer phenomenon, was we, as Charles said, we got to the point to where we allowed this to happen. It was democracy. We were able to decide to get into this thing. But next thing you know, brands started to pay attention. And, you know, as many good things go, the commercialization of social media turned into you finding out that your friend who's saying go to these movies were actually just getting free passes to the movies and not even really getting paid. And then there were people who were really getting paid. And then it's like, well, wait, what type of messaging are we dealing with here? So it just it, it got sticky in a way that you want to wash off, I think. And some relationships, I think, even though we were really happy to reconnect with people from high school age and whatnot, it's also like there's a reason why I don't see you every day. You know, that I'm, I'm kind of we should keep this on Facebook. So. But also the way that trends spread. I mean, remember Coney 2012? Oh, yeah. I mean, who who remembers that? I mean, th this was the first YouTube 
YouTube video to go completely viral, hit a million people. But this was a way that people communicated with each other and showed who they were and other trends that have happened on social media. Look at look at the dance trends. I mean, Gangnam Style, you know, international K-pop, all of these kind of dance trends, the Harlem Shake. These these are ways that we shared ourselves with each other beyond social media, but didn't really look at the cost. I'm getting some nodding from you, Joycelyn. Is that something you want to pick up on? Oh, yeah. Remember the Kiki Challenge? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, I the think ice that, bucket challenge. Right, right. So, I mean, we got an opportunity to to see the ways in which music and culture could, you know, cause people to take a song, turn it into a dance and make it go viral. Um, although it ended up being some accidents that came from it because people were trying to do the Kiki Challenge and, you know, ghost ride and mm. end up hitting a pole. But it, That was my favorite challenge, right, right, the ghost ride the whip right, challenge. Right, right, right. But, you know, it's it's interesting that you're what you say about Facebook being, you know, a way to reconnect with people who you haven't seen in such a long time. And then when you see them out, it's like you have this weird feeling like – we haven't seen each other, but I feel like I know you mm-hmm. now because we've been seeing each other on Facebook. It's good to see you offline. You know, those types of feelings come up when you're thinking about the way in which you interact with Facebook and with Twitter and with Instagram. So, you know, and then now you have coffee table books based off of the selfie. Mm-hmm. You know, Kim Kardashian has a book. Rihanna has a book that's coming out. You know, the way in which they're curating their content off of off of Instagram to make even more money. So I think that the social media trend turned into a way in which people can monetize a certain aspect of of their brand. And I guess we'll see where that goes in the next decade. This is something that Sherry Turkle said way back in the day. She's at MIT and looks at, she was at first a big cheerleader of digital culture, but now is looking at it and saying like, we get this illusion of friendship without the demands uh, or this illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. And I think that has larger implications for, you know, the way that we interact, the anonymity of of the post Mm -hmm. and how people could hide behind that. Wondering if anyone has thoughts on what that has done to, let's say, activism, because that has changed significantly. Look at, you know, Occupy Wall Street, the, the Tea Party movement. These are all things that were carried along by or, or grown by social media, certainly. How has that changed the way that we look at each other in the world? I think social media, at the end of the day, allows people to be who they want to be, um, whether it's a caricature or whether it's reality. And that also, to me, extends into major movements. So movements have a voice, perhaps, that they would have had to fight for that space before in the conversation. They no longer have to fight as much. They can go directly to the people and that's what social media does. It just it allows this engagement and this interconnectivity. I think that could be used for good, and I think it, it could also be used for bad. Mm-hmm. The projected self. Yeah, and 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 I do agree. It's but it, and and while we were talking about this, I was just playing back through a lot of the kind of hot button political issues that I've covered, and it's. Social media has been a great way for a lot of those to raise awareness about it. But if you do not show up you are not going to move the needle. Mm, I mean, right. like maybe you can you can call somebody out and call out a product for a really stupid tweet, you know, and uh, and they'll take it down or something like that. But if it's a if it's a major social issue, um, at least locally, 
nothing beats going to a city council meeting and staring down your representative. Do you think people still think that, though? Or did they think that, you know, if I get a million followers for my political tweet, uh, that really means something? It, it, I, it, I mean, it's a great question. <laughs> it's a great, downside. I don't know. Well, we I can try it. Is, it does mean something. It just doesn't mean what you think it means. Yeah. Right. You're a social media activist. Maybe. Yeah, but I mean, look, at the end of the day, I used a word that I think is really important, which is illusion. Oh, you illusion. know what? I'm so sorry. I have to put you on hold. I got carried away with this conversation. Don't know we had to take a break. So we have to take a break. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hold okay. up, everybody. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. With the end of the decade upon us and amidst the different highlight lists circulating online, we want to throw our hat into the ring and as ask you, what trends do you think best summarize the 2010s? You can comment in our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Tweet us at OST Talk on Twitter. Like Twitter user Microwave Sushi, who pointed out that hip-hop, especially trap music, has gone global. We definitely want to mention that. Chris Jennings chimed in with mom jeans. <laughs> I don't know if he likes them or not, but I plead the fifth about whether or not I wear them, I'll say. We'll get to that in more, but pick up the conversation that we were having before the break. Charles Isbell, Dean of the College of Computing at Georgia Tech. Joycelyn Wilson, Assistant Professor of Hip-Hop Studies and Digital Media, also at Georgia Tech. Nicole Smith, Features Editor for the AJC. Thomas Wheatley, Articles Editor for Atlanta Magazine. And Atlanta-based writer Michael B. Jordan. Okay. So we were just talking a little bit about um, uh, social media, and I think that spreads into all of the tentacles of things that we want to talk about. But let's also think about some of the ways that we really, really changed our lives. Let's say rideshare, like Uber, you know, technically mm -hmm. started in 2009, Lyft in 2012, have really upended everything that your mother told you about not getting into a stranger's car, certainly. How has it changed the way we get around cities and, and, and interact with each other? I think it's definitely just challenged transportation in general. When I travel to different countries, I don't even worry about how to get around anymore. If I, if I was in London, if I was in Cape Town, anywhere I went, I just caught an Uber. It's just an extension of basically what the needs are. And, and at the end of the day, when something has a utility aspect to it, we use it. And so I think it's made life for me easier. Well, it's a lot of liberty with it, and you don't have to think about parking. But I'm curious for you, Charles, somebody who looks at how companies operate – Company launches, there's a lot of a question about how profitable they will be. They're very jacked up with capital at the moment. And then, of course, we have uh, contract rideshare workers going on strike. California law classifying Uber and other gig economy employers, uh, uh, workers as employees. Beginning of the end? I mean, what do you see coming up here? <laughs> I like that if it's the beginning of the end. I will say that it's the beginning. It's the beginning of something really big. So one of the things that uh, – so Uber's a wonderful thing. Uh, Lyft's a wonderful thing. The whole – you know, share economy is a wonderful thing until it stops being that way. Mm. Uh, I think on the positive, we're going to see a nice impact on um, there'll be fewer cars on the road. Actually, none of my kids don't seem to want to drive. Mm. They don't want to Yeah, but with drive. more Ubers on the road. Yes and no, but who's going to be driving those Ubers? I think the answer is no one. So it, most people don't realize this, but in something right. like 40 of the 50 states, the most common job is truck driver or taxi driver. Mm -hmm. Once we have self-driving cars, and we're going to have self-driving cars relatively soon, all of those people driving around in those Ubers, they're not going to be driving around in those Ubers. As consumers, we'll be hopping in the cars, and we will be able to get to where we want to go, but there won't be a human being driving us, and that's going to have a massive 
impact on the economy. How about another major shift in the way that we deal with each other? Dating apps, of course, they, dating services or online dating was big in the t- 2000s. But dating apps have really changed. Tinder and Grindr and other you know, apps about the way that we meet each other. How have they changed the way that we interact? I'm not sure because I'm so reluctant to get on them. You know, because, you know, you have Tinder and then you have Match and then you have eHarmony and all of them supposedly have these different formulas and algorithms for how to meet people. And I don't know. I just haven't made that transition that who I see on the other end of the profile actually exists. But the other part about the dating apps, I'm not sure if they're going to become even more popular, although I do have some friends who have gotten married and stayed married. Yes, so we've, all heard, heard, we've all heard it. those stories. <laughs> there's but, something about it. <laughs> but I think dating apps promote more sort of hookup culture. I don't know. Right. You, do you think Tinder I'm wrong does. about that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think they do. I, I was on a dating app for, uh, earlier this year for – I was on dating apps, actually, earlier this year. <laughs> and it was um, one of the most mesmerizing rides of my life. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, – you just meet so many – random people mm-hmm. that you would that you wouldn't meet otherwise and that's that's kind of the thing that i liked the most about it um i talked to people and, they, and they're like oh i hate them they're terrible it's so i had a lot of fun because i was meeting people that i was not going to see at my grocery store or i wasn't going to see maybe necessarily on the belt line that's or something the scary like part that. though <laughs> yeah <laughs> scary about- <laughs> and 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 yeah i and i did have some train wrecks of dates but i mean it was <laughs> Overall, do yeah, tell. Okay. <laughs> How then, much time do we have? Exactly. <laughs> this is the, the, forget the rest of the 2010. At the end of the day, though, we have to think about who's driving the popularity of the apps, right? We have millennials and now Gen Z, right? Mm-hmm. These are digital natives. Mm-hmm. They're used to digital, and the way they communicate and interact is digital. So that's nothing foreign to them. So I think that as those people continue to drive the economy, drive our culture, it's going to become more normalized. And we'll get used to it. We, uh, that would be left behind, in my opinion. Or we, we can do the old folks <laughs> apps or something like that. So, and, and whether you are home alone waiting for a, a, a Tinder date or you are coupled up, uh, the way that we watch television has really changed. This seismic shift, certainly. Netflix used to mail us DVDs to your home. Now we stream hundreds of movies mm-hmm. and original content. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus recently and more how does binge watching change our relationship with the content we consume michael i'm putting it to you well it changed things like for me personally i've never wanted to commit a three-hour block of time to going to a movie theater it just seems like there's enough bad movies out there that it ends up being a bad decision by the time i've gotten there i mean you know and I can name a whole bunch of movies that I walked out on and I found like eyes wide shut. I was like, oh, I missed this whole part of the movie that was apparently something that happened. But, um, Everybody did. Don't yeah. worry about that one. But I think it just changed things because, um, you know, as I'm wearing my Watchmen t-shirt today, I thought that, that was a really good show. But it's almost like it rewinded us back to... HBO made you wait on each episode, whereas I remember when, um, you know, what is it with um, the the presidential show with... Um, House of Cards? Yes, House of Cards. When House of Cards first came out, and you could see all of it, and mm-hmm. no one would be at work on time Monday because you had streamed for as many hours as you could in a weekend to watch it. And there was something about that that felt very much like, oh, I'm in possession of this. I need this for my schedule. I can't do what everyone else does and be here at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday night. But at the same time, there's something magical about going back to 
oh, there's anticipation for what's going on. We're in this together. Are you going to be there? So it's it's made it a little bit of both. I like the fact that we didn't go so far with streaming that we can't still respect and bring back the vinyl of technology. You know what I mean? Like there's still ways to consume this content in an old school way that's still good. Don't throw out the baby. On the other hand, <laughs> if you are not doing uh, the binge watching, right. then you're left out. Yeah. Yes. So much of what, what we're talking about, you know, all the way back to the conversation about social media, it's all it's all about communication and sort of the social group you're in or you're not in. So if you don't have HBO and you haven't watched Watchmen, then you're a terrible person and you're not a part of the in group, right? You can't have that conversation. And so it's we're it's allowing us to create even finer subgroups of people we're a part of or we're not a part of. All right, then let's get to that because I think that there's a lot to that that summary of in group or not in group. Like the people who are on Twitter is actually a very small part Portion, proportion of the population of the mm-hmm. United States and, and the world, obviously. But we're talking about, you know, the kind of conversation that you have after watching a show. Like, I watched Succession late, so I felt like I have nobody to talk to about this, you know? <laughs> there is this kind of of the moment, and I think that this is really affecting so many aspects of our media, certainly journalism. I feel like there's a lot of pack journalism that if you don't feel like you're on this story, that's why I think the same kind of stories get spun out over and over again. I'm quite, you know, all journalists in the room are many journalists in the room any thoughts on that yeah the the, the, twitter is the land of endless takes Mm. it's just it's just a you know everybody there's one story that day you're going to put you're going to do your take on it um there is one argument that day everyone's going to sift through it and someone's going to have a compelling argument and it's going to be discussed and then tomorrow we're going to do it all over again um for me personally that's it's kind of exhausting and and also with like with the binge watching of shows I I remember I was scolded by somebody because I wanted to wait to watch Atlanta mm-hmm. after like the craze kind of died down and I like to do that with shows right. because I just I don't like getting caught up in all that stuff um and also when I binge shows I kind of I come to realize that I can't remember anything later on. Like there are some shows I I can't remember if I watched it or not. <laughs> like Justified maybe. I don't know. And also you would get spoilers on social media too. So the the age of spoilers changed to your point. If you don't binge watch something, it will be spoiled for you nine times out of ten. And um, Twitter has become the home for me of uh, this selfie journalism thing that's happened. I mean we made it so that anyone could become a publisher. And um, I I always tell people it's one interesting thing to me is that a a B2B term like content went mainstream. So everyone talks about being making content and oh that's some really good content. I'm like the refrigerator has content like anything (laughs) has content. But the fact that we have again bought into this idea of I make content. I'm a content creator. And then you're on Twitter and nothing's stopping you. So Mm -hmm. I was saying like for journalists I think Twitter it, it has saved me more times than not because people can't shut up. That's the problem, though, Yeah, with Twitter. Well, that is the problem. But the other uh, problem, I think, is that the cruelty that can happen. It was interesting to hear somebody Mm -hmm. in that little uh, bit on the street say, I think we've become more compassionate. I'm not sure that that's a view that everybody would have, Mm -hmm. you know, that it feels like Twitter has opened up. It's it's let the dogs out because of the anonymity of it or the relative anonymity. Mm -hmm. And we saw this horribly, you know, in the evolution of gaming, huge, huge industry in the 2010s. Fortnite came out, Pokemon Go came out, but also we had Gamergate, you know, changing the conversation. This is a social media lynch mob, basically, uh, misogynist, that I think, like so many things on Twitter, really became a proxy battle for, for bigger cultural stuff. But this was, I think, the place where the social internet, fully developed 
and reactionary politics, you know, the sort of 4chan, 8chan, dark web politics came into view. That was acute. But I think the outgrowth of that is cancel culture. You know, somebody Mm -hmm. does something wrong, you cancel them on Twitter. Mm -hmm. That there seems like a lot of danger there on both sides, the cancelers and the cancelees. So, you know, we were going to say it sort of the nice way of saying it. I, I like this way of talking about it is everyone can be a publisher. It's empowering, mm-hmm. right? You have the power to do something. The problem is you have the power to do anything, right? So what it does, and I keep coming back to this word, I think we all do, which is illusion. It creates this illusion that there are billions of people who think exactly the way that you think. Whereas before, you were alone. But now, because everyone believes what you believe, or at least the three other people who, and two of them are bots, uh, believe what you believe, you keep going and you keep going and you just become more and more comfortable in that and you start saying things that you just couldn't say and it creates more and more division. I don't want to sound down about this. I do no, think in the I, end I it's a positive No, I am with you too. Thing. I realize that I, I feel like I'm casting a sort of pall over, or, or, over Twitter. I think there's so much that is great, you know, the, the sharing, the marketplace of ideas. But I think like all the things we're talking about, there are other things that come with it. There are other implications that come with it. If you open up the marketplace, you have to be willing to listen to everybody who's there. At the end of the day, I think that social media, and I'll also put this on streaming, gives people a place that mm-hmm. didn't have a place before. So I think about, I was ravenous over the show Rhythm and Flow, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, T.I., if you, if you got a chance to see it, it's on Netflix, and he hosted it. And then there were about, I think out of the five finalists, three of them were from the city of Atlanta. That kind of show that is a reality TV show that kind of reminds you of American Idol, but it has a hip-hop spin, right? Mm-hmm. Does it really have a place on broadcast television does it have a place on network television i would venture to say no but it found a worldwide place on netflix so i think that social media and streaming is giving people a place that didn't have a place in society before right we talked a little bit about this in the in the green room about how these platforms are creating spaces for people it's kind of democratizing it even though you have people who are going to use it to hide behind whatever they want to say and to be mean and and unkind. But it does give people an opportunity to put their content out there if it is good content. Because you're right, it's content everywhere. It's content in this room, right? Mm -hmm. So you do have the opportunity to participate and be a part of something beyond the opportunities that you may have, that you probably didn't have before. So a, a, a show like Rhythm and Flow, you're right. I don't think that's going to be on ABC. I don't think that's going to run on, you know, Wednesday night. But it did find its place on, you know, streaming. And I think a lot of other platforms are, are, or people are able to do that. It really shows that we just have to be responsible with the tools that we have. Yep. And I think that's with any tool. So here are our new tools. We have to be responsible with those tools. That's a really important point. I think Mm -hmm. what we're we're hearing here is we're talking about technology, whether we say we're talking about technology or not. Mm -hmm. But what we're really talking about and not talking about is culture. Right. right? And, Mm -hmm. in fact, even cancel culture is an attempt at uh, the, the community to figure out how we are going to police one another in this new world where anyone can speak for as long as they want to to as many folks as they want to. And the problem that we have now and the problem that we've had forever, and it's going to only get worse, is the technology is moving faster than the culture can move and keep up with it. But I hope that we're just in a time of transition. And when we come back in 10 years to talk about the 2020s, we'll talk about the things that have happened, mm-hmm. that we become better at managing these changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... Uh 
there's culture and there's also there's a whole legal framework that hasn't quite caught up with how we do things, you know, so it is sort of self-policing cancel culture. But to get to that uh, point about diversity, the inclusion and visibility is such a big part of what has motivated social media and people to put their voices out there. We think of the Oscar so white hashtag that began back in 2015, the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. which which gave a voice to millions and millions of women across the world. And, and also the protest movements, you know, to circle back around the, the climate change movement run by uh, the Parkland shooting movement, you know, the, those who were the March for Our Lives. So that has given so many people access to airwaves that they never had before. But with a couple minutes left, what are some of the things that you feel like 2010s, you're ready to, ready to let go of, ready to forget, and those that you think we need to hang on to? E-scooters. <laughs> I cannot get walk, rid of I, or I am openly saying get rid of e-scooters. I cannot walk on the belt line with almost, without being almost run over. And I'm fearing for my life what used to be a leisurely scroll on on the belt line. So I either and I know that at this point people are trying to mandate them and control them. And we're seeing major consequences, even the loss of life. I think we need to think about um, e-scooters and, and really what they're doing to our activity and our leisure. What do you think, Charles? Self-driving e-scooters? Uh, <laughs> I, I would like nothing more than for those things to go away and for people to use them properly, which is probably not at all. How about other people? Things that you're ready to let go of from this decade and things that you want to embrace for the next? I don't know if I'm ready to... I agree with you on e-scooters. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to what else hip-hop is going to infiltrate. It has grown to be one of the most impactful and influential trends of the last decade across business, education, technology, media. I'm interested in what's going to happen next because Atlanta has continued to drive that culture Mm -hmm. and it's global now. So I'm interested in, in seeing what's next for generations who have come of age and they're impacting so many different industries. When so you're seeing people like Killer Mike and T.I., you know, having political influence in communities. And look at Jay-Z. He's making more money off of his tequila empire than, than music by a long shot. But even across politics, you know, if we even look at the election of Obama, if we look at the election of our own mayor, we're seeing the come of it. We're seeing a generation come of age and utilizing these artists to drive decision making. So I would I'm interested in seeing what happens over the next decade. All right, quickly, what have you got, Michael? I want to see cancel culture go away. Mm-hmm. I think that if you believe that you're supposed to agree with everything someone does and that everyone's supposed to be like you, to your point again, Charles, you believe that other people believe what you believe more than anything else. That needs to go away. We're not going to like everybody. We still need to break bread and at least see each other and acknowledge that we live here on the planet together and not act like there's something else. Cancel culture should go away. And I'm also going to say this. As someone who owned an e-scooter before the craze, <laughs> I think that you're all wrong. And you all need to experience one in a peaceful setting. It brings zen. There was a, there was a way to make this work, and we failed. Okay, I cancel y'all. I cancel y'all. I'll take that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's just it's, – it's not – Managed well. All right, we no. got it quickly. <laughs> what do you got, Thomas? I'm, I, I'm, I'm with Mike on e-scooters. They're awful <laughs> until you use one yeah. and need one to get some work quick. quick. Um, I, I'm ready to leave influencers behind. Uh, okay. Mm. How about for you, Charles? Unreflective use of data. Mm. 
Boy, something that we could get to, and we'll have to devote another program to Joycelyn Wilson, Michael B. Jordan, Charles Isbell, Thomas Wheatley, Nicole Smith. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we do have to say goodbye to some of our terrific interns this week, Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Thank you for your time, your work, your dedication. We wish you luck in your next steps. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. We've got a whole new decade to enter into. Thanks for listening.